I'm Mark O'Connell, and this is the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour. The Hush Hush Society presents Declassified Discussions. Introducing your hosts, Mystery Mike, Declassified Dave, and Slick Frock Sanders. Hello, Hushlings, and welcome to the brand new and improved declassified discussions and today we are joined by a guest we've actually already had him on the show there is an episode that you will never hear (laughs) uh, unfortunately but today we have the author of close encounters man he is also the producer ufo researcher of ufo witness on discovery plus and brand new host of the podcast far-fetched Today with us, Mark O'Connell. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm glad we could do this again. And I feel sorry for all you poor folks who don't get to hear the first one we recorded. It was it was a great <laughs> we'll, have, we'll just have to make this one better, right? Yes. That's right. Above and beyond. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, Mark. So gave you a little intro, but first and foremost, I want to hear about your new podcast because it just launched today as of the time of this recording. Tell us about the show. It's kind of interesting. I never really I never really had planned on doing a podcast, but now that I'm now that I've actually started it, it, it seems like a logical progression. You know, I'd been doing my uh, my uh, UFO blog High Strangeness for about the last 10 years or so, and in the last year I've kind of switched over to UFO Twitter, and I guess I'm always looking for new ways to express myself and share my views and um What happened was uh, a number of different things sort of converged in my life all at once. So my wife got me this podcasting microphone for Christmas. So that was kind of the deal. I guess I'm going to do a podcast. She kind of got me motivated to do it, which I'm really grateful for. But then the question came up, well, what am I going to do a podcast about? The natural thing would be UFOs because that's where I've, you know, spent most of the last 10 years of my life is talking about UFOs. Um, But... There are so many great UFO and paranormal podcasts out there already. I didn't think the world needed another one. I, I didn't think that I would really have enough new to say to to really justify another new UFO podcast. But I, I had had this experience last fall. My wife and I moved from Wisconsin down to Georgia. And for the first time in about 15 years, I had to pack up everything in my office to move and it got me looking through all these old file drawers and, and plastic storage bins. And I was realizing how much stuff I have written over the years, much of it, which has never seen the light of day. And I started thinking, well, hmm, you know, may, maybe I could do a podcast about my career as a writer. So it just kind of took off from there. So that's what it's about. It's called Farfetched. Um, it's it's about my life as a writer. And, and uh as I say, as I say in the intro, it's about my largely unpaid but mostly enjoyable career. Absolutely, I like that tagline that you have. And it, for those of you that don't know, Mark actually wrote some Star Trek episodes, Deep Space Nine. He wrote for a great episode, uh, "Who Will Mourn for Mourn," and that was a great, a great episode of that show. I've, I watched it. So do yourself a favor if you've never seen that episode. Oh, thanks. That was that was uh, that was really my high point of my career with Star Trek. 
I actually have kind of a general question. What influences did you have growing up in wanting to become a science fiction writer? What set you down that path? My my as, uh, my earliest conscious memory was when I was about three years old, and my mom was watching TV, and I was watching TV with her, and she tuned in the the pilot episode of this new science fiction show called The Outer Limits. So this was 1963. So Outer Limits was this black and white anthology science fiction series, and the the premiere episode that my mom was watching that night involved um, this glowing energy creature that had been mistakenly transported to Earth. Um, and it just terrified me as a three-year-old. And I ran upstairs and hid. <laughs> I wouldn't come back out again until the monster went away. And for some reason, as I remember, my mom just kept watching the episode. <laughs> she didn't turn it off and say, there, there, Mark, it's okay, the monster's gone. To my recollection, she watched the whole episode, and then she told me it was okay to come out from where I was hiding because the monster was gone. <laughs> so that was a very traumatic experience, but it really instilled in me, for some weird reason, this fascination with outer space and aliens and science fiction, and it's, it's stuck with me ever since. The, the next part of it was when I was old enough to start going to the library and checking out books, and we had a, we had a library that had a very small section of books about UFOs and poltergeists and Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot and the Bermuda Triangle. You know, you're sort of your all-star cast of popular paranormal themes. And I read all those books cover to cover over and over and over again. So that kind of cemented my profound interest in, in these, these different types of phenomena. That's so cool that the interest started so early and just got a hold of you for so long. That's great that it had that sort of effect. Yeah, it, it really it really caught hold of me and never let go. That's the best way I can describe it. I've just been a science fiction and science geek for my entire life. My dad got me into all of that. And then actually the library, I would say. But my dad had a book. I wish I knew the name of it. It's so old. And it was like a paranormal UFO book. And it was huge. It was like 18 Ooh. inches by like 16 inch, like this old hardcover, hardcover book. I wish I knew what it was. He was into all that. And he also would make me, you know, watch movies that were probably pretty inappropriate for my age and in the science fiction genre that scared the crap out of me. And it was just like, <laughs> that's it. Just just keep watching. It's okay. Unfortunately, you guys didn't hear the first episode. We had a really great conversation about Star Trek. And my <laughs> my dad pushed Star Trek into my life as well as Star Wars like it was a religion. So that was a big part of my life. And it's, I think it's really awesome. And I also know the the episode that you had wrote. So that's pretty, it's pretty cool for me that that's kind of the same aspect. I remember the section in the library too, where there was like all that like weird paranormal <laughs> stuff. It's kind of funny. Yeah. Say that. Yeah. And you know, the books that really attracted me that I remember the most from that library were they had a couple of different books by Brad Steiger. And I don't know if anybody still knows who he was, but man, for a while in the 60s and 70s, he must have been the most prolific paranormal writer there was. He wrote book after book after book. And there were a couple of his books in particular from my village library um, that I absolutely loved. And I don't know why, because they scared the living daylights out of me. Those are always the best books, though. Oh, yeah. So, Mark, tell us a little bit about how you got involved with the show UFO Witness. Well, this all started with my book, The Close Encounters Man, that was published almost almost four years ago, summer of 2017. 
Um, around the time the book came out, my agent and I had been approached by a couple different producers who are in, were interested at the time in doing something with the book, whether uh, a TV project or a movie project. So we, we talked with a couple different people who had different ideas for what they wanted to do. Um, none of those came to pass for a variety of reasons. That's just the way this business works. Um, but one of the companies that we had talked to, I had kind of a good feeling about them. So I, a while after the book was published, I circled back to them and said, you know, I know you guys were interested at one point in doing something with me relating to my book. And I said, here's, here's a new pitch to you. I said, I told them, I have so much leftover material that, that I couldn't put in the book because I just ran out of space. I'd love to try to use that material to develop a, a new TV show if you'd be interested. And they were interested. Um, and so we just started digging through digging through all my files of, of cases and stories that, that just never made it into the book. And the show went into development. And it, it took a couple of years to really get it to solidify. And the concept of the show changed here and there over the course of the development. What we ended up with was kind of a a structure for each episode where Ben Hansen and I were on the show. And what we did was we would, we would look at a, a new, a contemporary, a fairly new UFO case, and then compare it to a historical UFO case to try to find any parallels or trends between these cases. So the way the show sort of divvied up was Ben would look into the contemporary case and he'd go out in the field and interview the, the witnesses and I'd be the I'd be the resource for the historic sighting. So Ben would come back to the archives where I would be stationed, and we'd go over some some old historical cases and lo again look for um, look for similarities and trends between the old cases and the new cases. So that's the format we ended up with. I thought it I thought it worked pretty well. My disappointment was that um, about a week before the show went into production, uh, I was diagnosed with lymphoma. And so I had to take a big, big step back from my involvement in the show. So uh, Ben took over the reins and did a great job with his segments. And I, I, uh, I'm still in every episode, but but I'm kind of like uh, I'm kind of like the old uh, librarian, the old, the old archivist who Ben comes to for for counsel uh, when he's hit a brick wall with his investigations. It's kind of a fun format. I think it worked pretty well. Um, but that's kind of how it, that's how it came to be in the format it's in. Yeah, it definitely worked out well. I know that the three of us, we, we binged it. Um, yep. yeah, <laughs> I, watched it yeah. Great. I think Frank actually went and got a, a subscription to discovery plus so that we could all watch it. We all, yeah, we all, we all party watched <laughs> that, it. That's great. <laughs> you know, my, my big thing with the show was that I really hoped that we could get some new voices into the conversation, and I think we did a I think we did a fairly good job of that. We got Jenny Zeidman mm -hmm. to sit down in front of a camera to talk about her ex experiences with Project Blue Book back in the nineteen fifties uh, and sixties with Dr. Hynek. We got Ron Manner from the Michigan Swamp Gas case. And Ron has never shared his story with anyone wow. until we sat down with him. Uh, we got. We got Rick Jesse from the Coin Helicopter case from 1973. Uh, it had been years since he had talked with anybody about his experience. That one was fascinating. So I was really proud of the fact that we got people like that on the show who you you don't 
you don't normally hear from them. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really important to bring new voices in and talk to talk to people who may have been sort of forgotten over time, but who actually have some really startling stories to tell. That that was a real high point for me. We've talked briefly in some of our episodes about Project Blue Book, but for those of our listeners that don't know the details of it, could you tell us what Project Blue Book was all about? Yeah, the what, what we what we call the modern era of UFOs began in 1947 uh, when a private pilot spotted a chain of silvery, what he described as saucers skipping across the sky. And it became a national news story and a national craze. And some reporter referred to the objects as flying saucers and the name stuck. Well, before you knew it, uh, the Air Force was getting inundated with reports from people saying they had seen strange, sometimes spooky and frightening things in the sky. And the Air Force had no idea what to do with these reports. They, they didn't know what was going on. They had no clue. And since their number one job is to keep our skies safe, it was kind of an embarrassment for the Air Force to be dealing with this, this thing that they couldn't track down these things. They couldn't, they couldn't shoot them down. They couldn't do anything. So the Air Force was kind of backed into a corner, and they started a new office at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in, in Ohio. The first iteration, it was called Project Sign, then it morphed into Project Grudge, and then it finally morphed into Project Blue Book. And, and it went from the late 40s all the way to, up to 1969. And basically, anybody who had a UFO sighting report to file they would generally call the Air Force, the local Air Force base, and report it. And those reports would all get sent to the Project Blue Book offices in Ohio. And the mission of Project Blue Book, it, it, it changed here and there over the first couple of years in existence. But eventually, it just sort of settled into this pattern of, well, Project, Project Blue Book is out here to debunk UFO sightings. Their mission was to make people stop paying attention to UFOs, basically. Mm. And they didn't do a very good job of that. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> you know, it, it translates into modern day Air Force uh, because they're kind of facing the same thing with the recent yeah. releases of, of UFO footage. And they're kind of feeling like, again, they can't do their job. They can't police the skies. I mean, yeah. that's kind of their realm. So I think they're feeling that pressure, especially nowadays, which is interesting. Mm. Yeah, I agree. And isn't it funny that after all these years, it's still the same dynamic? We're still dealing with, we're still dealing with the Air Force just not really knowing how to deal with any of this. <laughs> but at the same time, they're, you know, they're tacitly admitting, well, yes, there is something weird going on. We just don't know what it is. So interesting. What do you think the best evidence that they've found within Project Blue Book, some of the things that they found actually could prove the existence of UFOs and extraterrestrials? I would say the best case, just if we're just sticking with the Project Blue Book era, I would say the, uh, the Lani Zamora case in uh, Socorro, New Mexico in the early 1960s. I think it was 1964. Mm -hmm. Lani Zamora was a traffic cop in this small town in New Mexico. And he was chasing down a speeder, and he heard heard and saw an explosion, uh, what he thought was an explosion, take place just off this road he was on. So he veered off the road, forgot all about the speeder, and drove to where he thought that he had heard this sound coming from. And he got to the uh, he was on top of a high ridge in his police car, looking down into a little canyon, and he saw what he thought was an overturned car. Well, it on second glance. 
it was not a car at all. It was a big, gigantic, egg-shaped object the size of a car, and it was resting on landing gear on the desert floor, and there were two strange people outside of this thing, sort of the size of large children or small adults, and they were wearing white coveralls. Well, Lonnie comes scrambling down the hillside to see if these people need any help, and he kind of loses his balance and loses sight of the object for a second. When he sees it again, the two creatures have disappeared, apparently gone back inside, and this craft blasts off with a jet of flame and then zooms off across the horizon. And what makes this case so important and so convincing is that this craft, whatever it was, left behind landing landing pad imprints, um, and it left behind the burnt remains of a bush from its uh, exhaust when it took off. Jeez, that's pretty undeniable evidence, yeah. It, you know, and it was one of Hynek's favorite cases because he felt the evidence was so strong. So this was this was a close encounter of the third kind because it involved alien occupants. And normally, Dr. Heineck would have would have shied away from a case like that because the the occupant cases were so uncomfortable for him. But the fact that there was this physical evidence of the scorched bush and the landing pad imprints that was very very convincing evidence to him. Mark, tell us a little bit about Jenny Zeidman. You had said that you got to work with her a little bit for that UFO witness show. Could you tell us a little bit about? her involvement with Project Blue Book and her archive of documents? I love talking about Ginny Zeidman because <laughs> she's really my hero. When I started researching my book about Dr. Hynek, Jenny was the first person that I wanted to interview because I, I kept coming across these letters written back and forth between Jenny and Dr. Hynek while they were working together and, and, and later on while they were maintaining their friendship. And they it was very clear these two people, not only did they have a, a really warm friendship between them, but they also shared this deep intellectual curiosity regarding the UFO phenomenon. I thought she was a fascinating person. So I tracked her down, talked her into um, talking to me on the phone. And I said, look, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm writing a book about your friend, Alan Hynek. I'd like to interview you. And she said, well, I've already written about those years of my life, and they've been published here and there online, and you know, you can find them here in the MUFON archives, et cetera. And she said, you know, feel free to look that up and use anything you want from that. And I said, well, that's great, but I'd still love to talk to you now you know, to find out where your head's at 30 years later. Mm. And she hung up on me. Oh. <laughs> and I was, I was really shocked. I didn't know what to do. I almost called her back and started pleading with her. But then I just thought, no, I think she really wants to leave the past in the past. So I need to respect that. So I let it go. I was able to quote some of her uh, thoughts from some of the articles she had written about her time with Hynek. So that was all good. And then when the book was published, I heard from her son, and he said, Mark, could I pass your contact info to my mom? She'd like to talk to you about your book. And I was scared to death. I had no idea what her reaction was going to be. But just basing, basing it on the fact that she had hung up on me, you know, three years earlier, I didn't have a good feeling about it. But uh, I contacted her and she wrote back and she said, congratulations, Mark. You wrote Alan exactly as I remember him. So that was a huge relief. And that was, you know, that was by, f by far my best best uh, review of the book. Um, 
So Jenny and I started to become pen pals and I would ask her in emails, you know, well, what about, you know, what about this case you worked on? What about, you know, tell me a little bit more about Heineck. And so, you know, over, over time in all these different emails, she would tell, you know, fill in some of the blanks, tell me a little bit more about the, how Blue Book actually worked and, you know, what it was like to work with Alan Heineck. And then when this show came along, when the opportunity to do the show came along, I emailed her and I said, I said, this, you know, this is, we're giving you a chance here. You could sit in front of a camera and tell your story the way you want to tell your story. If you'd be willing to, you know, work with us on this show. And to my, to my delight, she said, yes, I will do it. And I knew she didn't really want to. I knew she was very shy about it. But, you know, when somebody has been keeping secrets like she did for 30 or 40 or 50 years, and they've never really been able to talk to anybody about them, um, when they have an opportunity to share their thoughts, they'll, they'll generally come forward and be very open about it. And that's what Jenny did. And I, I will be forever grateful for her to her. I, I hope that, you know, we still have a lot more interview footage with Jenny that we w- weren't able to use in UFO witness just because there just wasn't time. Mm. And someday I, I'm hoping that we can still use some more of that material with Jenny. Cause she had a lot of really fascinating insights into the UFO phenomenon. Yeah, that'd be really great footage to see. Mm. There's a scene of Jenny. We didn't end up using it in the show, but we used it in the teaser reel, the sizzle reel, when we were trying to sell the show to uh, Travel Channel. And in this clip, Jenny just says very forcefully, she says, yes, I do believe that there are intelligences out there. And she gets very serious and she says, they found us first. And it's really, I just watched that again yesterday, and it's really kind of a chilling moment. The way she says it, she's so, she is so convinced they found us first. And that is not a good thing in her view. Yeah. So we keep talking about your book, The Close Encounters Man. Can you tell us what that book is about? Well, I'm happy to say that the book just came out today as an audio book. I'm very, very thrilled about that. The Close Encounters Man is a biography of Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who for many, many years, decades in fact, was really the nation's number one expert on the UFO phenomenon. He had an amazing career as a scientist. He was an astronomer and a teacher. He did some amazing work, just straight science work as an astronomer. Hynek has a lot of a lot of important projects behind his name that, that were really valuable to science at the time. But he also was very a very visible and very open and outspoken researcher into the field of UFOs, which as you can imagine, in the late 1940s, early 50s, that was not a safe bet for a young scientist and educator, you know, to get into, to become a sort of a spokesman for the UFO phenomenon. That was a very risky move for him. Definitely. Yep. So that was one of the things that really fascinated me about his character. So I got a chance to write this book because I was doing some research for my podcast, High Strangeness, at uh, a home in Chicago that houses Dr. Hynek's uh, personal and professional archives. Uh, Hynek had started a UFO research foundation called the Center for UFO Studies, or CUFOS. And they were, they were and they still are, uh, alive and active in, in Chicago. And so I would visit their archives every now and then to look for material to write about in my blog. On one of these visits, uh, Mark Rodiger, the scientific director of CUFOS, just sort of casually said, hey, Mark, you know, I've been reading your your blog. I like your writing. 
And he said, we've always hoped we could find someone to write the definitive account of Alan Hynek's life and career. And he said, I wonder if you'd be interested in that. And I just was amazed. I said, yes, I'm very interested in that. That's a dream come true. That's like the ultimate writing assignment for me. So that's how it all got started. And then I spent the next five years or so researching Hynek's life, researching his work, interviewing people who worked with him and who knew him. And that's so that's how the book came about. Yeah. And I, I look forward to listening to the audio book. Can I get it on a Kindle? I wonder. I'll have to look. Oh well, it's that. been it's been available as an ebook uh, for a long time. Oh really? You okay. Get it on, yeah, yeah. You can get it on Kindle on the Amazon site for sure. The uh, audiobook is brand new, and this is it's available on Audible. Uh, it's published by a company called Tantor Publishing. Uh, we just found out about this like last uh, December, shortly before the holidays. Got a, su- a surprise email from my publishers at, at uh, Harper Collins saying, "Hey, somebody wants to do an audiobook. Are you, let's do it." It's completely, completely out of left field. What do you think about the Georgia Guidestones? That is so interesting. Well, it's I, I, I did a guest spot on a podcast a couple of months ago, Drunk Theory. I don't know if you know those guys. Yeah. Oh, we know them. <laughs> okay. Very, very fun bunch of people. I had a ball talking with them. They talked to me about the Georgia Guidestones. They were like, have you, been, have you seen the Georgia Guidestones? I didn't know what they were talking about. I'd never heard of them. <laughs> um, but I've I have studied up on them, and they it it's uh it's uh I've already told my wife one of these days when we have a nice day for a day trip we're gonna go see this thing, whatever it is it sounds pretty weird, um but it definitely sounds like something worth checking it's out. It's very weird. Hasn't it been altered recently too? It's like something been added I, I don't to know. It. And I was and I'm sitting here thinking I should explain to your listeners what it is, and I don't even think I don't feel like I can explain it. I don't really understand what it is. It's somebody, somebody who moved to this part of Georgia back in the day, I don't know how long ago, and for some reason put up these carved, uh, a sort of an arrangement of carved stones, like a, like a junior-sized Stonehenge, <laughs> but, there's, but there's writing on the stones, right? And I'm not yeah. sure what the whole thing is with the writing on the stones. It was erected in 1980. Oh, yeah. okay. It's not that old. So it's 10 guidelines in eight modern languages. I'm pretty sure that they just like added something to it i read recently mm-hmm. okay so it's guidelines so rules for living or something i i think it's sustainability of like of earth oh. you know it talks about uh like a a population limit of like it was it like eight hundred thousand people or something like that it's very like very strange <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah wow all right well i'm gonna have to check it out someday with recent events and vaccine talk and those people that are against it, everybody mm. starts talking about the Georgia Guidestones and, oh, well, it's some sort of prophecy. We got to start following that. It's a very, <laughs> very oh. odd little thing. Yeah, I definitely need to look into that. So, Mark, I believe last time we talked, you were saying how you went to Antarctica with your family for your father's 90th birthday. Uh, could you tell us a yes. little bit about that experience? Oh boy, I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> yeah, my my dad, um, he's 95 now, but at the time he was 90, and he's a world traveler. He and my mom traveled all over the world uh, when my mom was still with us. And after she passed away, dad started thinking. Well, he he had already been on six out of the seventh continents. Out of the seven continents, the only one left was Antarctica. And he was smart enough to know that my mom never would have wanted to go to Antarctica with him because it's too cold. 
So, you know, a year or so after, after mom wasn't able to travel anymore, dad just thought, well, I, I'm going to go. And he invited uh, me and my siblings along. And so we made a big party of it. And it was uh, one of the best adventures I've ever had. And it was really wonderful to share it with my dad and my, and my uh, three of my brothers and one of my sisters. It All told, it was about two and a half weeks. Part of that was just the traveling down to the southern tip of South America, down to Patagonia. Mm. Uh, we spent a couple of days in Buenos Aires, which is a beautiful, beautiful city. Oh, I'd love to go. Um, and then we then we flew down to Ushuaia, which is this another very beautiful city down at the southern tip of the continent. And then we boarded our ship. And the trick with getting to Antarctica is you have to pass through some of the roughest seas in the world. It's called the Drake Passage. Mm. Uh, so for two days after you leave South America, for two days, you're at the mercy of this really awful stormy ocean. Um, and the ship is just getting battered by waves and it's rainy and cold and miserable, but then you get to Antarctica and everything's beautiful and happy. And, um, (laughs) so we spent like four days just sort of tooling around. The ultimate objective is to land on the mainland, right? So that people like my dad can literally say, I, I was on this, I set foot on the seventh continent. Yep. Um, so there were a lot of folks on the cruise who were in that same situation as my dad. This was the last one they needed to get it. You know, they needed to get that notch on their belt, but the weather was so bad that after the first, first three days, we could not land on the mainland. We kept landing on islands and, and landing on an island is not good enough. <laughs> if you're a seventh continenter, oh, you have not. to set foot on the continent. So luckily, our last day there, we got a chance to make a landing on the continent itself. So we got to take, you know, take pictures of our dad holding up a big banner that says Antarctica Continent 7. It was beautiful. It's an amazing place. The the thing that amazed me most was just the vastness of everything. The unbelievable scale. Everything is so huge and we are so tiny. And even our huge cruise ship <laughs> was so tiny. Once you get off the ship and get on land and you look back over your shoulder and think, oh my gosh, my two favorite things in the world are penguins and icebergs. And you see, you see a lot of them in Antarctica and they just never cease to amaze. They're just, they're just such magical things. It's incredible. We just released an episode of a flat earth episode. Did you see the ice oh, wall yeah. in the end of the earth Any you were in Antarctica because <laughs> that's something we really wanted to ask you. <laughs> I, that's such a great question. No, I did not see the wall and I, and I did not see any secret UFO. <laughs> and I was keep and believe me, I was keeping my eyes o- open for that. <laughs> and I did not see either one of those things, but damn, I wish I shame. had. <laughs> yeah. A few, a few of our past few episodes have been based around Antarctica <laughs> And uh, we, you know, we did like a, an Antarctic bases episode where yeah, we talked about one. Yep. kind of exploring the idea of uh, Nazi Antarctic bases. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I, let me just share one Antarctica story with you because this kind of, this was the biggest, this was the f- first big shock, okay? So after our two days on the Drake Passage, we're getting closer to Antarctica and the captain gets on the, the public address system and he says, hey, folks, we're having a contest tonight. Who can spot the first iceberg? Because we're getting close to iceberg country. So, you know, uh, not many people competed because it was so flipping cold out. Nobody wanted to be standing out on deck in the middle of the night looking for icebergs and freezing their tootsies off. Nobody wanted to do that. So there, there wasn't much competition. 
So it was me and my family, and it was another fan. I think one or two other families, and we all just t- decided to stick it out and watch for the first iceberg. Well, the first iceberg finally appears. We just missed being the first ones to see it, but it wasn't anything. It wasn't like anything I had ever imagined. It was a tabular iceberg, so it was completely flat on top. Hmm. And so it's just this flat square thing jutting out of the ocean. And after we could all get a really good look at it, the crew said, they told us, okay, you think you're looking at something that's fairly close to us? And they're like, that iceberg is actually five miles away, which blew us away because it looked like we were right next to it. Wow. He said, "It's, it's five miles away. That edge you see sticking out of the water is 500 feet high. The length of the iceberg was wow. a mile. He said it's a mile long from when it did. And that just was like, okay, we're entering into a whole new scale of things for the next couple of days. And that's how it was for the rest of the trip. That's amazing. That's incredible. That really uh, really puts things into perspective. A little bit. <laughs> yeah, it does. If I would recommend the trip to, <laughs> if you can stand the cold which really isn't that bad when you get down to it. If you, but if you can stand the cold, man, make the trip if you ever get a chance. It's wonderful. We're going to make a Hush Hush Society excursion. <laughs> there you go. I'd come. Back in 17, we had the bizarre flyby of the Oumuamua cigar-shaped asteroid. It came and oh, went yeah. very fast. Could you tell us your opinion and thoughts on that a little bit? I think it's fascinating. I think I think we really need to consider very strongly what uh, what I think his name is Avi Loeb, the the Harvard yeah. astronomer, is saying in his new book that this this may well have been some sort of ship or artifact from another civilization. I, I, how do you not consider that? I mean, it, so here my experience of it actually was that all took place right around the time that my book came out. And I was invited down to the Chicago Public TV station, not to talk about that object, but to talk about (laughs) the recent UFO news with uh, the New York Times article and everything back in 2017. So, But it turned out I was appearing on this public TV show with an astronomer who worked at the Adler Planetarium in Chicago. So, of course, I asked him, what do you think of that thing? What do you think of, of this thing that's just cruising around our solar system? And he took it very seriously. I mean, I don't want to put words in his mouth or anything, but he just basically said, he said, I'm so disappointed that it's already on its way out. He said, and I, he, he, was unable, he was unable to study it on its way into the solar system. And he said, now that I actually have time and resources to study it, it's leaving and I can't study it anymore. But so I was really impressed by that. Here's a professional astronomer at a leading institution and he is taking it extremely seriously and saying, I want to know more. That really made a huge impression on me. Yeah, it's really unfortunate that they, they almost caught that too late. Yeah. They didn't get to get a lot of information out of out of the celestial object because of when it was noticed. We previously talked about this last time you were on the show, but uh, I I really enjoyed your, your answer to it, and I, want, <laughs> I would like everybody to hear it. I just want your thoughts and your opinion on the David Fravor UFO experience. Oh, boy. What did I answer last time? I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. You're, really, you're totally putting me on the spot here. No, no. It's okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think the most honest response I can give to that is that I, I am really ambivalent about it. There are some things about it that seem very exciting and 
worthy of attention. And there are other parts of it that just kind of strike me as really weird. And I'll tell you a couple of the things that strike me as really weird. Number one is, and they sh- and it, it's funny because they brought this up in this t- in the public TV show I did in Chicago, because they showed they showed some of those videos and said, "Well, what do you guys think of them?" And at the time, I said, "Well, what puzzles me is you can clearly hear one of the pilots saying, there's a whole fleet of them.' <laughs> and I've never seen a fleet. All I've ever seen is one tic tac on a video. Where's the fleet? Yeah. So that that always bugs me. Where the hell is the fleet? What was that guy talking about?" And the other thing that, and this is some, this is a more recent development with me. So I'm not sure if I would have mentioned this to you last time we talked, but I have always thought um, that it was a little weird that all these major, major advancements in the UFO story all took place right around the same time. There was the bombshell article in the New York Times. There was the leaked videos of the Tic Tac encounter. And there was the sudden formation of this new organization called To the Stars Academy. Uh, And to make the coincidence even weirder, guess where those leaked videos came from? They came from To the Stars Academy. And every time I think about those three things happening like all at one time, I just can't help thinking this whole thing has been very carefully stage managed. I have really serious doubts that any of it is real. I know a lot of people get pissed off at me for saying that because it's, you know, it's an article of faith. But the coincidences are just too coincidency for me, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's just it's a it's just too how could those three things have happened all basically at the same time? It, I'll say it again. It just seems very carefully managed, yeah. and I don't trust the narrative. I'm pretty sure your response was the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> Spot on. That's why we wanted to ask that question. All right, good. <laughs> yeah, we well, were, good. I'm glad we got it down. We we were just recently talking about To the Stars and how it kind of seems uh, – I don't know. Uh, it seems kind of like a like a PR stunt type of uh, – type of organization yeah. so we're, we're on the same uh page well, when you're using celebrity name you know as a poster or somebody that's yeah. using it you know like and nothing against anybody that's in it but like if you're using a celebrity name i mean that came out of nowhere seeing yeah. seeing tom delong quit blink 182 and start this kind of came out of absolute nowhere and and since you brought up tom delong i also have a very hard time imagining tom delong <laughs> showing up at the pentagon and getting a meeting with a four-star general, you know, it's like, "Hey, General Smith, Tom DeLonge's here to see you." Well, clear my calendar. Um, come on, Tom DeLonge gets to sit down with four-star generals at the Pentagon at the, at, you know, on a sudden whim. I'm sorry. Thank you. Oh, come I've on. been saying that from yep. the beginning. I mean, it's oh. so stupid. Come on, generals have better things to do than meet with rock stars. <laughs> They have more important fish to fry, you know? (laughs) That's so funny. (laughs) All right. We speak the same language here. That's good. (laughs) So it kind of coincides with it. But in the the latter months of 2020, when they started to re-leak this footage, I guess, because it's footage from the past, the Pentagon had said, oh, we have off-world vehicles. They admitted it or whatever in, in multiple articles. And now that there's this... I believe we mentioned it this six month or 180 day certain mm-hmm. disclosure period that we started to enter in the beginning of 2021. What are your thoughts on that? 
Well, you know, it's just suddenly got even more complicated today because there was this news that uh, Inspector General at the Pentagon is now is now looking into the development of this report. It's just reached a whole new level of confusion for me. I'm I'm not sure what any of it means, and I'm honestly I, I'm not even sure if I care. <laughs> we've been down this road before. We've had the the Robertson Committee. We've had the we've had the uh, the Colorado study. I mean. We, we've had government-sponsored investigations into the phenomenon before, and they've always fizzled. They've always ended up being big disappointments. They've ended up, you know, sort of just, you know, just basically saying there's nothing to this. There's nothing to it. It's not a threat to our country, so we don't care. Mm. So, you know, maybe a report will show up at the end of June, or maybe maybe the report will be kept from us, or maybe we will only be given you know, tiny little glimpses of what's in the support of when the report, I just, I don't have huge confidence that this report, if it comes to pass, I don't have huge confidence that any or all of it will be shared with the public. And I, because we've never been given any reason to think that would happen yeah. bef- before by the government. We've never been given any reason to believe that would happen. So why people would believe, oh, this time, you know, u- ufology does suffer from a well, this time it'll be different kind of disease, you know? <laughs> yep. I, sorry to say, I mean, I wish things were different each time, but sadly they're, they aren't usually. So, yeah, so there's, there's my response to that. Hopes and dreams, hopes and dreams. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And we, <laughs> we all have hopes and dreams. That's the thing. You know, we all have those hopes and dreams. We all, we all, want, we all want the big one to happen, um, you know, fairly soon during our lifetimes when we're involved in it. Um, but but we've been we've been fooled and we've been let down so many times. I I have a hard time just getting that psyched up about it. And here's here's another thing. Basically, this comes really down to my personal philosophy. I have for almost my entire life, I have believed that there is a physical reality to the UFO phenomenon. It might not be a physical reality that we understand. Let me put it a different way, an objective reality to the UFO phenomenon. I've always believed that, and I've never needed anyone else to validate my beliefs. So I don't need the Air Force to come clean about anything. I don't care what the Air Force says. It's not going to change what I believe. I already believe they're real. I'm still going to believe they're real after the Air Force files their report. It's not going to change anything for me. Just lastly, I just want to touch on your thoughts of the possible correlation of UFO slash cryptid sightings in militarized zones, you know, zones where there's been uh, hot zones where there's been explosions or maybe nuclear activity. Um, one popular one is the Mothman in, in the TNT area. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It, you know, many different UFOs shooting lasers at missile silos and stuff like that. So what, what, are, your, uh, what are your thoughts on that? My thoughts on that are that stories like that seriously – make me nervous. <laughs> mm. I'm not going to go so far as to say they scare me, but they do make me nervous because those stories do pop up with, you know, with a certain regularity. They don't happen a whole lot, but they do but they do happen, right? Yep. A- according to the reports, they do happen. And it's a very scary thought and it's very easy for me to believe that um an intelligence that comes from somewhere very far away that has come to our planet to see what we're doing, 
to spy on us or whatever they might be doing, it, it's not hard for me to believe that, that that intelligence would be smart enough to figure out where our defenses are and, and take close looks at them. Mm. And to scare the living daylights out of us in the, yeah. in the process. Yeah. You know, there there are some UFO stories I find hard to believe, but stories like that, um, that involve, like you said, that involve weapon systems, that involve security installations, those are the kinds of UFO reports that that, that I get nervous about. Yeah. Well, yeah, it makes us feel very vulnerable. Yeah, because we want to think that those weapon systems are pretty foolproof. And the, the thought that, you know, a flying saucer could come along and like set off one of our missiles, that's not a comfortable thought. There's one story that I was reading about, and it was like a couple of weeks ago, that I had never heard of. And there was a lot of UFO sightings that I didn't even know about uh, in the Vietnam War and a lot of stuff. Oh. And that's stuff that I, I had zero knowledge of until like literally a couple of weeks ago. And as I was reading that there's one, there's actually an account and I completely forgot the name of the boats and what was going on, but there was an actual PT boat that claimed to be like blown up by a UFO. And there's a bunch of people that said that they saw it and it was covered up and then came out in a report later. But I completely, there was no like major, major sources on it, but hmm. it was interesting to to hear that. Like somebody had said that like, there was an actual violent response <laughs> yeah. to a, a wow. military presence. Yeah. That, that would make me nervous. Thank you, Mark O'Connell, for coming on the show. I think that's going to do it for our interview with you. We hope to have you back. Uh, we have so many more questions for you, and uh, we, we would love to invite you back. Sure, absolutely. Make sure, guys, that you go out there and you pick up Close Encounters, man. Read it. Listen to it as of today. Watch UFO Witness. It is a damn good show, and oh, Ben Ben Hansen and Mark O'Connell do a great job. And Hushlings, please take a moment, take some time, go check out Mark's new podcast, Far Fetched. Mark, any last words? Keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars, man. Oh, beautiful. That <laughs> words to live by. To quote Casey Kasem. <laughs> I don't know. That was the first thing that popped into my head. <laughs> no, it's perfect. It's perfect. Thank you, Hushlings, for joining us on this Declassified Discussions. It was a great one. We enjoyed having Mark on for the second time, the first time for you guys. And we look forward to having him back on the show. We look forward to doing more Declassified Discussions with other guests. And before you go, Hushlings, make sure that you stop by our new website, hushhushsociety.com. Let us know how you feel about the declassified discussions or talk to us about any subjects you'd like to see us cover on the show, any topics. Visit all of our social medias. Hit the subscribe button, like button, follow button, message us, do anything you want. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And don't forget to check out our YouTube and listen to our show wherever podcasts are available. Come and check out the new website, hushhushsociety.com. On the website, you can find the link to our merchandise. It is the freshest, drippiest conspiracy merch on the market. Let people know that you are down with the conspiracies. You can cop yourself a fresh coffee mug. Coffee tastes better out of a Hush Hush mug. Don't be fooled. Yeah, get cozy in the drip. You can also get 20% off of your entire purchase with the code HUSHLING20. 
Join us for our next debriefing, which we are going to cover the moon landing hoax and the Apollo missions. It is completely out of this world. Oh, boy. Thanks for stopping by the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour Declassified Discussions. <laughs>